Good morning. You're just singing a song about something. What was it? Huh? The birth of Christ. The first coming, we call it. The first coming of Christ. This morning we're going to look at some prophecies about your future, our future. And they're found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we are... We've come upon a prophecy concerning the day of the Lord and the second coming of Christ. So you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, and um, we're not going to be there for quite a while. So we're going to look at some um, slide presentation as I speak this morning to try to help clarify some of the things that we've already looked at and some of the things that we're looking at in chapter 5. And so, um, before we get to uh, Thessalonians 5, and since we're celebrating Christmas um, coming up here, I want to look at prophecies concerning Christ's first coming first. So, Jesus Christ is the most significant figure who has ever lived in history. But did you know that His first coming was predicted in the Old Testament Scriptures. The prophets spoke about him with 100% accuracy that, first of all, we'll just take a couple of them. First of all, he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. A second prophecy was that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem, Ephrata. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And so Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, from a virgin Mary. Actually, there are over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want, to, I want you to think with me for just a moment. What are the chances of one man, of any man, being born of a virgin? Okay? Secondly, what are the chances of that same man who was born of a virgin also being born in the town of Bethlehem, Ephrata, to distinguish it from the other Bethlehem that was in Israel at the time? What are the chances of that one man who was born of a virgin and born in the town of Bethlehem also having a forerunner who was predicted of him and that that forerunner would go before him to prepare the way of the Lord? And what are the chances of that same man who was born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, who has a forerunner, also being presented as the king of the Jews, being rejected, having his hands pierced, that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, and that that silver, uh, those silver coins would then be used to purchase a potter's field, and so on and so forth. Over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ. What are the chances of one man fulfilling over 300 prophecies that must be fulfilled to prove that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah? Well, it's a number that is too large for us to comprehend. Um, In mathematics, it falls under the category of the field of math called probability. And many years ago, there was a man named Peter Stoner who actually set out to prove that the Bible was false and to prove that um, it, was, it was just all made up. And he later became a Christian himself. And he calculated the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies about Christ's first coming. And it was determined that the chance that any man might fulfill just eight of the 300-plus prophecies was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So that's 1 followed by 17 zeros after it. 
That's the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of over 300 prophecies. And so he writes in his book, let us try to visualize this chance. If you were to mark one ticket, and uh, one of ten tickets, and place all of the tickets in a hat, and you have somebody randomly, or a blind man randomly, pick one ticket out of that hat, and pull that ticket out, and it being the right ticket, the ticket that was marked, that's a, that's a one in ten chance that he would get that. But the chance of somebody fulfilling just eight of over 300 of these prophecies, one in 10 to the 17th power, he said, suppose we take 10 to the 17th power number of silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep in silver dollars. And if you could somehow mark one of those silver coins and stir the whole pot up over the state of Texas, and take a blind man or a blindfolded man, and send him out to wander as far as he wants to wander in the state of Texas, and just randomly, at his, whenever he decides to just reach down and pick up a silver dollar, that silver dollar being the one that was marked, that is what it is to have a 1 in 10 to the 17th power chance of getting that right coin. It's, it's virtually impossible. You multiply that by 300 plus prophecies for the first coming, it's absolutely impossible unless he is the Lord. There were over 300 prophecies given that Jesus fulfilled. Some of them had to do with his miraculous birth, the place of his birth, and his ministry on earth. Some had to do with his trial, his beating, his mocking and scourging, his crucifixion and his death on the cross. Some prophecies had to do with his resurrection and his ascension. And there are so many prophecies that had to be fulfilled that they actually exclude every other human being who has ever lived or who ever will live on the face of this earth. If human DNA is found at a crime scene, what does it prove or what does it disprove? That DNA is so linked with the person who produced that DNA that it virtually excludes every other human being on the face of the earth who ever lived and who will ever live in the future. That's the accuracy of DNA um, Findings. The prophecies are the Lord Jesus Christ's prophetic DNA. They exclude all others and point to him alone as being the only one who could fulfill them. Well, the same Bible that predicted that Jesus would come for the first time also predicts his second coming. If he fulfilled, we can say this, if he fulfilled over 300 prophecies that were uh, spoken about him in the first coming, we can say that all of the prophecies that speak about him or that he must fulfill for his second coming must also come true. Do you have any doubt that he is going to fulfill the prophecies that remain, the prophecies that concern his second coming? I don't, not after what he's done the first time. In our last study, we looked at several prophecies about his second coming. One of them was John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. It says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. To receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said that. And so we as believers are waiting for his second coming, the coming that he promised himself. After he left earth, after he ascended, he promised before he ascended to send the Holy Spirit of God uh, upon the uh, believers. And the Bible says this, that if we have the Spirit of God living in us, 
we are his. If we do not have the spirit of God, we do not belong to him. The scripture is plain about that. So the next phase of um, history, of prophetic history, was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And Pentecost ushered in the church age. This is the dispensation that we are in right now, the church age. After the resurrection, um, the disciples spoke with the Lord Jesus, and they said, uh, they thought the Lord was going to, okay, you've died, you've now been resurrected, Okay, we missed it the first time. Before you died, we thought you were going to set up your kingdom. But surely now that you've been raised from the dead, now you're going to set up your kingdom. Right, Lord? Right? And the Lord said, well, let's read it. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons. Keep that phrase in mind because we're going to find it again when we get to second, uh, First Thessalonians 5. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. The phrase times and seasons is actually a phrase which is Jewish in nature and refers to future events that involve the second coming of Christ and his thousand-year reign on the earth. So it's still a future event, times and seasons that he's talking about here. What the disciples did not understand, and what all of you will understand today, and especially next week when Jake teaches the class on the two comings of Christ, um, in the Here's the Difference class, you will know this hands down, um, is that as the disciples looked at the scripture, and uh, that they didn't understand that there was going to be a long period between Christ's ascension and his second coming. We're still in that period right now. That's over, uh, it's 2,000 years. So we're still in that same time period right now, the church age, waiting, just like they did, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not to be idle. What are we to be doing? The Lord has left us something to do. In fact, the, the script, we call it the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, it says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Two thousand years later, we are still in the church age, Jesus still has not come back, but he will fulfill his promise to return and to set up his kingdom on the earth just like he promised um, and just like he um, fulfilled the first coming prophecies. So the next prophetic event to be fulfilled, the rapture. And we learned about that last time in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But what do we know about the rapture? What is it that we have learned about the rapture? Well, the rapture involves the resurrection of dead believers. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who are the dead in Christ? The dead in Christ are those believers from the time of Pentecost until the time of the rapture who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they died. They died waiting for the return of the Lord. Those are the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first at the rapture. The rapture also involves the translation and transformation of living believers. Verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Jesus is coming for his saints. And if you belong to him, you're going to rise one day in the rapture and to meet the Lord in the air. He's coming again 
for you. So the prophecies that we have here in 1 Thessalonians actually have to do with you. Wow, you're named in prophecy. You're either going to be the dead in Christ or we who are alive and remain. Either way. But one way or another, you're named here in prophecy. The rapture takes place in the air. It says, um, And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture, also something else we know about it, it was not known in the Old Testament. The Bible in the New Testament calls it a mystery. And any time you see the word mystery in the New Testament, it's not mysterious, you know, like a um, murder mystery kind of a thing. It simply means that it was not revealed in the Old Testament. But God, in his grace, has told us something that we would not otherwise know. That mystery has been revealed to us. And what is the mystery? The rapture. That the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. That's the mystery. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So the rapture will happen secretly, or suddenly may be a better word for it. It will be invisible. You say, well, come on. If all these people leave, then, of course, people are going to know they're gone. Yeah, they're going to know they're gone after they're gone. But they're not going to see them go. The effects will be quickly known. But it says, um, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. How, how quickly does your eye twinkle? So I saw some of you actually smile there. And that little twinkle in your eye. Okay? But it was gone quickly. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Once the rapture takes place, the Bible describes for us a seven-year period of God's judgment on the earth. um, And it's upon the unbelieving world. It's called the tribulation. Uh, If you look at the scripture, you'll see that it is a seven-year period. The entire seven-year period is the tribulation, but it's more intense in the last half of that period. And that portion, the last half, is called the Great Tribulation because of the intensity of the uh, judgment that is being poured out. The first half isn't going to be much better, okay? They're going to be crying out peace and safety, but there won't be any. In Matthew 21, it says this, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. We know that World War I was intense, World War II was intense, and all of the battles of history have been intense. But they will be nothing in comparison to this event during the seven-year tribulation period. In a matter of, I think it's two of the judgments that come upon the earth, half of the entire world's population will be killed. So if you think in terms of 8 billion people that live on planet Earth, that's 4 billion in just two judgments. It's incredible the amount of carnage that will take place. But it is a, God is pouring out his judgment against those who have rejected his son and the offer of salvation that he freely gives We are living in the age of grace where we can right now believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. In that time, it will be very difficult for people to um, be saved. This period of time was first spoken by the prophet Daniel. And the prophecy is found in Daniel chapter 9. And it is a prophecy concerning 70 weeks of years. So if you take 70 weeks and a week has seven days, in this case it has seven years, that's 470 times seven is 490 years of God's dealings with his people Israel and the holy city Jerusalem. We've already preached on this. If you want, you can go back and get the, uh, uh, or download the sermons and listen to them online if you like. Or Jake could even print, some, I mean not print something out, but he can uh, 
get you a CD copy if you want to do that. And if you, if you really, really are old school, he could probably put it on tape for you. No, he can't, he says. <laughs> um, so we've already preached on this. I'm not going to go over it in great detail, but it's important to note this, that when Jesus was rejected by the Jews, when he presented himself as their king, and he was rejected by them, and he was crucified on the cross, God paused the clock of his dealings with Israel. And it was precisely at the time, at the end of the 483rd week of years. Okay, so in other words, 483 uh, years of God's dealings with Israel. And he, he punched the stop. You know, he hit the snooze button on it. And that snooze button is still pressed. And it won't be released until the tribulation period where God will once again take up his dealings with the nation of Israel in particular and will complete the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks of um, prophecy. In Daniel 9.24 it says this, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. The church is not in view in that prophecy. He is talking to Daniel, and he is talking about Daniel's people and Daniel's and the city, the holy city that Daniel is familiar with. And so Daniel was a Jew, and so he, Daniel's people are Jewish people, and the holy city is Jerusalem. The church is not seen in this prophecy, and, it's, and it underscores the fact that the church will not be part of the tribulation period. That seven years is very Jewish in um, its nature. We are not in the seven-year tribulation period, and it's because we've already been taken out at the rapture. That takes place first, and then the earth uh, undergoes this time of tribulation. Okay, so the tribulation, let's talk about that for a minute. The tribulation is described in a number of ways in Scripture. First of all, it's described as a day of vengeance. Isaiah 61.2 says, The day of vengeance of our God. Interestingly, um, uh, again, next week Jake will point this out to you, so I'm stealing his thunder. But when the Lord Jesus Christ preached uh, in the temple, do you remember that he talked about, uh, he was reading from Isaiah, and he spoke concerning all of the wonderful things that he would do. And he stopped short of this part of the verse um, because his first coming had to do with the blessings that he was offering to the nation, his blessings that he's offering to us, but not judgment. But in his second coming, it will be a coming of judgment uh, for those who have rejected him. Uh, the tribulation is described as a day of wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we pointed this out when we were in that passage, it is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not out of, in the sense of that we were in it and somehow he's going to let us go through part of it and gather us out from it, but he delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not going to be part of it at all. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, and he's talking to believers in the context, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation there is not the salvation of the soul, but deliverance from the wrath to come. Um, It is clear from the same verses that the church will not be here during the tribulation period because, as I said, it is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Once the seven years of judgment is over and the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled, Jesus will come again. And this is his second coming, but this time it is not to the air that he comes, but rather he comes to the earth. So let's recap the features of the rapture. It involves a resurrection. He's coming for his saints. He comes to the air. The rapture is not taught in the Old Testament scriptures. It was a mystery. And it is sudden, invisible, and secret. Now let's compare the difference between the rapture and the second coming. In the second coming, there is no resurrection mentioned at all. Secondly, he comes with his saints. It says in Jude 1.14, the Lord comes 
with ten thousands of his saints. Um, he comes not to the air, but to the earth. In Zechariah 14, 4 and 5, it says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. So when he comes, he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. That mountain will split and uh, he will be on the earth. The second coming of Christ was... Um, Known in the Old Testament, the, the, the Jews anticipated the coming of the Messiah. What they didn't understand is that he would come first as their Savior and that he would come to suffer. Even though the scriptures taught that in the Old Testament, they ignored that part of it because they wanted a king. But they wanted a king of their own making, a king that satisfied deliverance from Roman oppression but that's not the kind of king he came to be. He came to be Lord, king of kings and Lord of lords and Lord over each one of them. So it was not, uh, so it was known, his second coming was known in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Well, we just read from Zechariah. That's in the Old Testament. His second coming will not be in secret. His coming will be in power and in great glory. We read in Revelation 1-7, He is coming, and every eye will see Him. Wow. Every eye. So His coming will be manifested to everything. In the rapture, that was not true. It's secret, hidden. And we're gathered up to Him, gone. It's almost like it just, poof, we're done. Okay? But in His second coming to the earth, it will be a worldwide recognition that here he is. Jesus is coming again. When he comes again, he will defeat his enemies. He will come back with his bride, that is the church, and he will establish his kingdom and his rightful rule on the earth. His capital city will be Jerusalem. He will establish peace on the earth that the world has never known, and he shall reign forever and ever as king of kings and lord of lords i can just hear you standing right now and singing the messiah <laughs> right but on earth um he will reign during the millennium the millennium is a thousand years so christ will set up his kingdom on the earth and he will reign from jerusalem for a thousand years the bible says in revelation 24 and i saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. After the millennium, he will abolish all of his enemies forever. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And anyone whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire forever. It's eternal. And then... We read in the scripture that the Lord will roll up the heavens like a scroll. They will be burned with a fervent heat. The planet will burn up with a fervent fire. And the Bible says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Wow. Do you know that the planet on which you now sit or stand is a disposable item? Okay? It's going to be disposed of. And the Lord will create a new heavens and a new earth. And all of the former things will be forgotten. All of the sin, all of that is going to be gone. Praise his name. So, do you remember what we said earlier after Jesus rose from the dead and the disciples asked if he was going to set up his kingdom on the earth at that time? And Jesus replied and said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So all of what we have just talked about is just the introduction to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Okay? Wow, how's that for a setup? So it says in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So let's expand the picture a little bit here. What do we know about the day of the Lord? 
The day of the Lord. What is it? Well, first of all, it's not a 24-hour period. It's a period of time. Generally, it's a time of punishment for sins and a time of victory for God. It is spoken of in detail in the Old Testament and in New Testament portions. Um, But it's not a 24-hour period. When Jesus came the first time, how long was his first coming? 33 years. How long is his second coming? Thousand seven. Jake, he's got it. Okay, he's read his own homework for next week. Okay, that's a clue. Okay, so if you've got homework in that class, you want to you want to write that down. Thousand seven years, but in fact, it's eternal because when he comes back, um, ultimately to the earth, uh, it's forever. Um, when is it? When is the day of the Lord? Well, it immediately follows the rapture. It runs through the tribulation period. It runs through the millennium, right up to the final destruction of the heavens and the earth. That's the day of the Lord. Okay, And that's a phrase that you're going to see in the scripture over and over again, referring to this time period. But it's, a, it's, a, it's not a one-day event. It's a time period. It includes a lot of events within that scope. The day of the Lord. What date can we give it? Oh, we always like to set dates, don't we? What is the date of his coming. Well, I want, you to, I want you to know something, and I've always said this. If somebody sets a date for the return of the Lord, I will guarantee you that the Lord is not coming on that date. Okay? I will guarantee you he is not coming on that date. Why? Because the Bible says very plainly, and people should know this by now, but they keep falling into the same trap and making the same foolish predictions. But Jesus said this, but of that day and hour, no one knows. No one, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So the timing of it is unknown. But we do have some clues. Okay, I'm not going to set a date. We have some clues. The first clue is that he says in verse 2 that his coming will be like a thief in the night. doesn't mean that Jesus is a thief and he's going to steal something from you. That's not what he's talking about. But when when does a thief come to your home? At night, usually. When you don't expect it. Okay, that's exactly right. So he comes at night. He comes when you're least expecting it. And you go, oh, if I had just known, I would have been ready. I would have been prepared for him. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Another clue is that it comes like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, I've never been pregnant, but I have seen a wife who was pregnant multiple times, and she's just going along rosy like everything is fine, and all of a sudden, oh, <clears throat> it hits you, okay? And it hits her, not me. Okay, and uh, and it's sudden. It comes in, and you look and you say, "It's not really unexpected, is it?" And yet it is every time. I didn't know it would be today. I mean, I thought maybe it would be tomorrow or the next day, but nine months of this swelling stomach, this swelling belly. There are certain signs that are predict that are showing clearly that something is happening, right? And yet, it comes unexpectedly. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. This indicates certainly an element of surprise, just like the thief who comes without warning. So his coming will be sudden and unexpected. The illustration of the pregnant woman. All the signs are there that she's eventually going to give birth, that she's eventually going to feel the pain of childbirth. And when we look at the signs that are taking place in the world today, the world is ripe. The world is pregnant, we could say, with evidence that the Lord is coming soon and that the pain and the suffering and the wrath that is coming is coming upon this earth soon. And yet... They're saying peace and safety, like nothing's happening. The world is ripe for the judgment of God. Just as a pregnant woman's labor comes suddenly 
and she cannot escape the pain, so the wrath of God will come suddenly, and there is no escape. It cannot be stopped. Life, they say, just goes on as usual. Today is just like yesterday and the day before that, and tomorrow will be the same. Then sudden destruction comes, and they shall not escape. Matthew 24, 38, 39 says this, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, given in marriage, just life as usual, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will the coming of the Lord or the Son of Man be. Who will face the wrath of God? In uh, this passage, if you look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 and just read through the verses as I go through them, notice the personal pronoun, they, verse 3, as opposed to you, brethren, in verse 4. They say peace and safety, verse 3. Verse 3, sudden destruction comes upon them. Verse 3, they shall not escape. Verse 4 and 5, they are in darkness Verse 5, they are of the night, they are asleep. Verse 6, they are drunk. They, 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 them. Okay? It has to do with the distinction that God makes between those who are not believers and those who are believers. It shouldn't surprise us. Can you think of a time when the Lord did this before, when he poured out judgment upon a nation, the nation of Egypt? And he separated the Israelites from that judgment. While the nation of Egypt was undergoing suffering, the, the Israelites were preserved. Okay, so the pattern is not uncommon in the scripture. I'm going to ask you a question. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Why should you rejoice at his coming? Why should you rejoice that Jesus is coming again? Well, first of all, you are not in darkness. It says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, if you were in darkness, or if you are in darkness, if you don't know the Lord, you are in darkness. That's what the Scripture says. And this day can overtake you. But if you know the Lord, you are not in darkness, and you would not be subject to the wrath of God. If you're a believer, you're not in the same group as those who are in darkness. They will not escape. You will have already been taken at the rapture. Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Why should you rejoice that Jesus is coming again? Because you are sons of light. In 1 Thessalonians 5.5, we read that. You are all sons of light. You once lived in moral darkness. You once were like those sinners who have not been saved. You once were in darkness, but now you are in the light. You are sons of light. In Ephesians 5.8, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Third, you are sons of the day. In verse 5 again, it says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. Here, the term the day is not referring to the day of the Lord. Here, it's referring to day as opposed to night. Those who are in the day are believers. Those who are in the night are unbelievers. You know, when you think about it, it's an apt description of the world's sin, isn't it? Much of the sin that takes place in the world is done at night, right? Think about some of the places of sin. We even call them night clubs, right? Night clubs, darkened bars, dimmed lights, under the covers, secret sins, hidden actions, It's all to do with the darkness. It's all to do with hiding. When man originally sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, first thing they did, they ran and they hid. Why did they hide? Because they were in darkness. But as believers, we have already been exposed. Our sins have been exposed. In fact, we came and said, Lord, I am a sinner. Here is my sin. 
and we, we were uh, presenting, as it were, our sins in the light of his word. We saw from the light of his word how dark we were and how much in darkness we were. And because our sins were exposed and they were, they, we came to the light, he forgave us our sins and cleansed us from all of our sins. And we are no longer in darkness, but we are in the light. We are sons of the night. We are no longer sons of the night, but sons of the day. And so the wrath of God will not be poured out upon the sons of the day. You are not of the night or darkness, uh, verse 5 says. Did you notice um, in verse 5 where Paul changes the personal pronoun from you to we? And he's including himself as part of uh, what he's describing here. We are all, as believers, we are on the same ground as the Apostle Paul. Do you think the Apostle Paul is going to be uh, judged by the wrath of God on earth? No, he's not. And neither will we be. We are like him in that sense. We, he describes here in verse 5. Why do people remain in darkness, do you think, today? Why do people say, you know what, I don't want the light. I don't want the Lord. I don't want to believe. Why do people reject the light? Jesus said this, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. That's himself. Jesus Christ himself is the light of the world. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They would prefer to have their sins than to have Christ. They would prefer to have their sins and the judgment that is coming than to have their sins forgiven and to be freed from the wrath to come because their deeds were evil. Any time in the scripture that you see teaching about the second coming of Christ, it's meant to do one thing. Do you know what it's meant for? It's meant to change the way we live. It's meant to transform our life. If Jesus Christ is really coming back, and it's clear he is, we should live differently than we live today. How should we then live if Jesus is coming again? First of all, verse 6, do not sleep. Don't sleep, but I need my eight hours every night. Okay. So the Lord is not forbidding your bedtime nap from 11 till 7 or whatever it is that you sleep. He says in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do. And what he's talking about here is, is when he's talking about sleep here, he's not uh, talking about avoiding your nighttime sleep. He's talking about don't be in a dream world like those around you who don't know Christ. You cannot be asleep on the job. You cannot be asleep at the helm. In light of the soon return of Jesus Christ, we cannot live in a dream world. We cannot live uh, unconcerned about reality. When you lie down at night and you're asleep, you are totally unconcerned about reality all around you. He says, as believers, don't live like that. Don't be unconcerned about things that are happening Around you, there are people who are perishing for for uh, wants of the gospel. They need to know of Jesus Christ. They need to know that their sins can be forgiven. Don't be asleep. Do not sleep. Second, be watching. Verse six says, "But let us watch." Matthew twenty five thirteen says, "Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming." So the idea of watching is, is what? It's, it's to be ready. It's to be ready. There's a description in the Old Testament of a man who was a watchman on the, on the wall of a city. And the, the purpose of a watchman is to watch for enemies coming and to warn the, enemy, warn the people of the city that an enemy is coming to destroy the city. He says, watch. The Son of Man is coming. Suppose... Today is the day that Jesus comes back. Suppose it's today. Are you watching? Are you ready? 
Are you watching? Third, it says, be sober, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, let us be sober. For those who sleep, verse 7, uh, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. In Titus 2, again, referring to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 12 and 13 says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are looking for the Lord Jesus Christ and you are waiting for that shout to take us home to be with him, how should we then live? Soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You know, the coming of the Lord should have a sobering effect and a sanctifying effect in our lives. We should be different. We should get up in the morning and go, you know what, this could be the day. This might be the day. And as someone said, to to be living on your tiptoes of expectancy, that today is the day that the Lord is coming back. It has an effect on how we live our lives. Be sober. Don't be inebriated with the things of the world. Live soberly, clear-headed, and controlled by by, by the Holy Spirit. How can you live soberly? Well, Paul uses a description um, of uh, are terms that are fit for a soldier of Christ. He says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. Can you imagine a drunk soldier? Can you imagine somebody who is, who is inebriated going out and trying to fight a battle? He's saying, look, we're in a battle, believers. We're in a battle. You don't go out uh, unprepared. Put on the breastplate of faith and of love. Put on the helmet of hope of salvation. And regardless of whether we are awake or asleep, verse 10, we should live together with him. So let's read that whole section. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Did you notice that? He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. There's a couple of possible interpretations of this passage. It could possibly mean that whether we wake or sleep, in other words, whether we are alive at the coming of the Lord or we've already died at the coming of the Lord, we're going to be raptured and taken home to be with the Lord. It's possible meaning of it, but it's not the same wording that Paul uses in chapter 4. So it's more likely that what he's saying, and this may surprise some of you, whether we wake, in other words, we are sober, we are alert, we're ready for the second coming of Christ, or we're asleep, meaning that we're not ready for the second coming of Christ, regardless, if you are a believer, you're still going to be taken in the rapture. Wow. How is, that's, that's going to make people just want to sin then and not be ready. No, it's not. It's the grace of God. And salvation is all about the grace of God. Salvation and deliverance from the wrath of God has nothing to do with whether we are awake or asleep. Salvation and deliverance are based on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. It's his work, not our work, that counts here. And there is therefore now no condemnation, the Bible says, to those who are in Christ Jesus. But in light of the fact that Jesus died for us, how should we then live? Well, Paul concludes this section, verse 11, by talking about how we should comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So in light of the soon return of our Lord and Savior, what should we be doing as believers? What should we be doing? We should be doing everything that we possibly can to comfort each other, to edify, which means to build up each other in our faith. And in Hebrews 10, we'll end with this. It says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. 
When I look at you, when you look at me, you should have one goal in mind. How can I stir him up or her up to love more, to do more good works? How can I encourage you to be even more involved in the things of God? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Two weeks ago was the last time I preached here. We're two weeks closer to the coming of the Lord. We're ten seconds closer to the coming of the Lord than I just said. And each second that passes is one second closer to the coming of the Lord. Are you waiting? Are you ready? Waiting for the coming of the Lord. Stir one another up to love and good works. That's what he's given us to do and to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth. Let's give him thanks. Lord, as we close this message this morning, we really hope that it will be the last message we'll ever have to preach on earth. We really hope that, Lord, this day, even this hour, you might come and we'll hear that shout and you'll gather us in the air to meet the Lord with all those saints who have gone before us, who have died in Christ and are raised first. Lord, we look forward with great anticipation to being taken out from a world of sin, a world of decay, a world that has essentially forgotten who you are. And we cry out to you, Lord Jesus, even so, come quickly. Lord, we cry out to you for friends, relatives, classmates, co-workers who still don't know you. And we cry out to you, Lord, give them this one last opportunity that today they might hear the good news that Jesus saves and that they too would come and bow the knee and have their sins forgiven to come out of darkness into your marvelous light. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.